Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Pat Wheatley for a conversation about Alexander III of Macedon, also popularly known as Alexander the Great. So Dr. Wheatley joins the show today, and he's going to share more about what scholars know about Alexander's early period of his life, his adulthood and reign as King of Macedon, and the later period of his life, including his death. Dr. Wheatley is Associate Professor of Ancient History at the University of Otago, based in New Zealand. He has written numerous publications over his career, including co-authoring the monograph, Demetrius the Besieger, which was published by Oxford University Press. And he joins us today from New Zealand. Welcome to the show, Pat. Hey, Andrew. Nice to be here again. Yeah, it's uh, good to see your face and uh, good good bearded men talking to each other here. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to see you as well, Pat. And whenever we chat, I, I too compliment your beard. It's looking great this morning, your time. <laughs> and right back at you, mate. Right back at you. <laughs> Thank you. What time is it, what time is it in New Zealand right now? It's about uh, midday, I think. It's okay. just a bit afternoon. Yeah, yeah. In winter. Uh, you're, it must be 10 o'clock at night at your... Eight, eight, yeah, quarter after eight. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, so yeah, 20, 20, 2015, 2016 right now, Toronto. Toronto time. Yeah. Summertime, oh. what, what, <clears throat> what season is it for you right now? Oh, this is right in the middle of winter, pretty much. We just had the shortest day, and uh, our winter isn't like you have it in Canada. It's probably about nine degrees outside, and the New Zealanders will be complaining. But some of us who have travelled to Canada know what winter really is, mate. <laughs> it's like a like a Mediterranean, uh, t- much, yeah. right? It's a Mediterranean winter day in some cases. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, my kind of my kind of winter. <laughs> yeah, precisely. I visited Alberta when I first came to Canada, and it was minus fifteen on the first day and minus twenty-seven on the second day. And I learned a very big lesson about what winter means. That uh, you 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 were uh, somewhat fortunate then, because it can get colder out 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 west in in I Canada. Understand yeah. this? Yeah, you guys yeah. are you guys are awesome up there. <laughs> you cope pretty well. Yeah. yeah. All right. So to uh, start the conversation off, can you share? Um, to create sufficient background and context, Pat, who Alexander III, also known as Alexander the Great, uh, who who was he? Well, Alexander was the uh, son of the the great uh, king of Macedonia, Philip II, and um, he he came to power in uh, 336 upon his father's assassination, which is the most interesting story, but you've probably, uh, your listeners have probably heard a little bit about that. And so Alexander's born and raised to be a king, um, not necessarily the heir, of course, because Philip II had about seven wives, possibly eight wives, and so did sire quite a number of children. But Alexander was the outstanding young man. He was 20 years of age when his father was assassinated and uh, suddenly found himself um, king of Macedonia, um, which was the most powerful uh, a region of um, the Greek world at the time. Um, so this is 336 BC uh, or so. Okay. Okay. And we'll certainly spend a fair amount of time during about his reign in this conversation. When, um, 
and we'll we'll create some chronology. So we'll spend a bit 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 of time first in the early period of his life. But when when um, when scholars are uh, looking at this topic, what ancient writers are they uh, leaning on in terms of knowing about um, Alexander's life? Well, historical sources for Alexander um, are uh, all quite a bit later than uh, Alexander's own life. So the earliest one we have is about 300 years after Alexander's death, and this creates the uh, essential problem for us in studying Alexander in that there are no uh, extant um, contemporary uh, accounts of his life. Uh, It seems as though... Everybody wrote about Alexander at the time. Um, many of his successors, his friends, his butler, his um, his helmsman of his navy, his, his admiral of his navy, they all wrote books about Alexander, but none of these books actually survive. And so we depend uh, really on a man called Arian, who is a Roman, a Romanized Greek, I guess, who wrote a book of, about Alexander around about 130 AD. So if you take this in context, you've got a hiatus of, um, well, 450-odd years between Alexander's death and our most lucid account of his life, you see, and this creates problems of understanding the guy. Mm. You know, both contextually, culturally, and um, uh, and so he's hard to access because of this. Uh, it becomes not um, we hear a lot about him, but it's hard to uh, take a lot of what is written about him to understand it clearly and understand it in context. You know, it's like us writing about. Um, say, early medieval times or something, you know, we can't quite understand it because we, you know, as the Bible would say, you see through a glass dimly, you know, it's, um, that's why they call that region the uh, the Dark Ages. And I think we have that problem when understanding Alexander the Great as well. And we're obviously going to speak about um, his conquest of um, the, the Achaemenid Empire, um, that that's a um, from from his per, from his perspective that's a that's a from his life that's a, a major milestone, but and I'm not questioning any of the I, like I'm I'm asking the questions about the source not because I'm questioning the the veracity of it but how do scholars how do scholars like when you look at someone like when you look at someone like Arian who wrote about him. Um, what do scholars do scholars uh, what level of veracity do scholars uh, put forth to those kind of historical works uh, when they're 300 years afterwards well that that's really this is a it's a very good question because it's it's probably the key question in some ways in uh, for scholars of Alexander to try and understand um, how the people that wrote about Alexander uh, in the ancient world, and I'm talking about the Roman world a few hundred years after his death, perceived Alexander, and then how we more modern scholars since about the 19th century, like the 1800s BC, uh, understand and unpack those Roman writers 
So you see how we're perceiving things very much through different filters. And what Alexander does, I think, to scholars and people that study him and are interested in him is um, he polarises them. So you wind up with an Alexander the Great and then for some people he's Alexander the Demon, you know. And so uh, this does happen, of course, with... um, Oh, I'm sure, you know, there's plenty of Russian histories that think Stalin was a was a great guy, I suppose. And um but you know, we, we know him as a butcher basically, don't we? You know, and and so Alexander is sometimes raised in the same breath as such people as Stalin, Pol Pot, these kind of people, Genghis, I suppose. Well 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 it, um that type of dichotomy of of writing about the same person came up in an episode um, that was published on the show a few days ago with Dr. Roger Rees from St. Andrews University in Scotland. And we were chatting about Diocletian's life and what he basically said, oh, and I'm right. And I'm par- bad emperors. Yes, yes. I'm par- paraphrasing of course, but what he basically said is that uh, there's, there's cert- there's a certain uh, way that Diocletian was written about from a, from a, uh, pro-Christian, if somebody's more pro-Christian versus somebody that may not, may not be, so yes. I can understand, you know, that kind of dichotomy and partiality that can exist when you're looking at uh, these historical cool. accounts. Um, and often, I think uh, scholars bring their own Alexander to the table, and uh, sometimes, if well. I guess if they're honest, they would just like to find out about Alexander, which is what I'm trying to put across to my students always. Think for yourself, you know. But our main source, Arian, the problem with Arian is that he is indeed in love with Alexander and does really want to gloss over some of the savoury aspects of Alexander's um, rule and history. And so we do wind up, you have to just look for this, you have to watch for this, uh, you have to go in with an open mind, I think. I, I mean, I've been interested in Alexander since about 1975 or something, all right? <laughs> and I still don't know whether I love him or hate him, honestly, man, you know, but I know that if he came to my city here, Dunedin, it would be a very scary time for us uh, when he comes mm-hmm. into your city with his huge Macedonian army and starts giving orders and telling everybody what to do. You're either going to do it or you're not. And if you don't obey Alexander or follow his wishes, especially as time goes on and he gets gets older and a bit more brutal, you're in for the high jump, man. (laughs) And I mean... uh, If he was coming into your city and it wasn't in a martial context, would you invite him out for for coffee? Um, and, a, and a chat. I don't know if he'd be so keen on coffee, but he would certainly drink some heavy liquor with the <laughs> Canadians. I didn't want to. I didn't want to lead with that, Pat. I, was, <laughs> I didn't want to oh, lead with that. Well, he, he just sent me up there. They were unbelievable drinkers, in fact, and uh, they were like Canadians. I, I've, I've drank with Canadians. I don't drink anymore now, nowadays, mm. but uh, I've, I've drank liquor with Canadians, and I know who. <laughs> you would take him out if you would take him out for a beer. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Or uh, several buckets of beer, I'd say, would be necessary for Alexander. But, um, I know. Uh, many scholars have talked about his alcohol problem. Uh, but, of course, this is a modern contextual thing, isn't it? Uh, um, but it's interesting you say that, yeah. All right. So what's known about when and where Alexander was b- born? 
Uh, yeah, he's certainly born in Macedonia and what's northern Greece these days, up, up somewhere up near the city of Thessaloniki in Pella. In about three, um, was it three fifty nine or so? Three fifty nine, three fifty eight. Yeah, uh, about three fifty nine, three fifty eight. Um, we don't have very much information about his childhood. All we have is about eight or nine chapters of Plutarch's biography. Um, hardly 10 pages, really, of uh, material about his childhood. Uh, it's very interesting. A lot of speculation has gone on about it, of course. Um, but the simple fact is there's not a lot of information. Uh, but he's brought up in a powerful, growing, burgeoning region under a very efficient and martial father. And definitely he's one of the main candidates to be the successor of his father eventually. Nobody understood or guessed that it would happen so soon because his father was only about 46 when he was assassinated and was probably in the full flush of his um, of his career, you know. Um, so he's cut short, he's cut down really. Um, you would think before Alexander was ready, but the boy was ready all right, even at 20, you know. And, and uh, for a brief burst there, he achieved um, a massive amount of uh, deeds, whether you, you applaud them or you, um, or you deride them is entirely up to the person. And, an, and an entire episode previously was um, dedicated on the show to his father, Philip II of Macedon. Uh-huh. So um, we probably don't have to spend a lot of uh, time on it because we could spend a lot of time on it. And we want to, we want to, we want to make sure we spend enough time on Alexander's uh, life in this episode. But I want to bring that up for all the listeners. Um, Dr. Ian Worthington of Macquarie university uh, in Australia was on this show and we did an episode on um, King Philip II of Macedon, his um, Alexander's dad that was published on May 27th, 2021. Um, What's, what's known about, uh, Alexander's mother. Oh, Alexander's mother, yes. Well, um, his, you bear in mind that uh, Alexander's father is, is a polygamist. He has about seven wives or so, and uh, he meets Alexander's mother at some kind of uh, cult meeting, I think, on the island of Samothrace. So one of the Greek mystery cults is celebrated there, and she was quite a young young girl. And he fell in love with her, apparently. She's quite stunning. She's a redhead. She's gorgeous. And uh, she's um, there's all the, um, the mysteries of the, the, religious, um, the religious fervor and everything. And he dragged her off and married her. Um, and it's said that of all his wives, uh, Philip actually uh, loved this woman. Her name is Olympias. Uh, and... Um, in due course, um, she she was pregnant and she had Alexander, and uh, that's the backstory there. But she wasn't the sort of woman, I think, who um, rested easy having to share her man with another seven wives, not to mention Philip's numerous homosexual endeavours, you know. Uh, so Philip was sort of pretty well polysexual, or whatever you might say, and he... Um, uh, as is pretty normal in Macedonian culture. Uh, and he was on campaign an awful lot. Every time he went on campaign, he married a new woman. 
But Olympia Sawatana's mother was not, um, she didn't rest easy in that kind of milieu, I think, you know. And of course, every time he came back, there was the domestic disputes, you know, the story, you know, where have you been? I've been conquering Thrace. Uh, who was that woman I heard you married? Oh, she was nobody. Come on, dear, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. And Alexander grew up in a contentious household, we'll say. Is it is it known um, if Alexander? So, if, is it known if Alexander's mother was Philip's first wife, or if not, what what order she she would have she would have been? It is. Um, let me think. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Was she about his fifth or sixth wife, perhaps? Something like that. There is a list of them in the sources, and I don't have it to hand. But um, she was, he had already married at least four or five women. And, uh, and that's why it's mentioned that he married women often for political alliances, but with Olympias, it was a love match. And that's mentioned um, very much. That's mentioned very much um, uh, as a point in the sources, which is uh, uh, unusual. And uh, where, where... She wasn't the, yeah, the last one. She wasn't the last one, of course, either, because... Later, he married another young Macedonian girl, and that caused massive, a massive uproar. The wedding party is described. There was a massive brawl at it. I'm sure you've been to weddings where there's been a brawl, Andrew. I certainly have. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, um, these things happen. <laughs> and uh, it's well recorded by Plutarch and very early in his uh, biography. Uh, and it's well... Uh, adapted by the Alexander movie as well um, which worth a look, which yeah which movie which which movie um uh, it, the it, movie that was uh, yeah. done by was it Oliver Stone okay um, okay in, yeah back in um 2003 was it or thereabouts you know the one the, Colin Farrell played Alexander I don't think I saw it. Uh, however, why I asked was that that movie came up in the episode kind of on the periphery with Dr. Ian Worthington as well. So I wanted to see if it was the same uh, movie. Uh, most scholars are very huffy about the movie because they say it's not historically accurate, but I find the movie quite brilliant, in fact. And uh, I tell you who played Olympias. It was um, Brad Pitt's ex-wife, you know, uh, what's her name? Angelina Jolie. Uh, she did, uh, did Olympias... Uh, Quite, uh, quite brilliantly, actually. She was awesome. So why I asked if the order was unknown, was known um, was I was working towards um, seeing if there was some kind of primogeniture-type rule at play in, in, in Macedon. And so, um, so, so what's known about how um, Alexander became, became king? Uh, well, I often make the joke to my students that uh, the, the uh, Macedonian national sport is regicide. So if you take a look at Alexander's uh, um, prior um, family, I think out of his previous 10 forebears who were king, about six of them were assassinated. And so um, 
there is uh, Macedonians cannot lie straight in bed as far as they're peculiarly treacherous royal family. There's some horrendous stories about what some they did to each other, brothers and sisters in Turnus and Strife, um, brothers marrying women who then sort of murder their husband and go off with his brother, this kind of thing. Um, this seems pretty well normal. Uh, so Alexander comes from a tumultuous royal house, we might say. The line of succession is never sure or secure. Usually a person comes to power and murders most of his kinfolk in order to secure his power. Otherwise, you wind up, somebody supports one guy. Well, you know, it's like the royal family these days. Isn't it? Somebody supports Harry, you know, and somebody else supports Charles, and Charles marries the wrong woman, and Jules the nice woman, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, the Macedonians are much worse than that. Believe me, <laughs> they're murderous, um, and um, that makes for some pretty lively reading, actually, of the history of Macedonia. So, so what's what's known about it then? Because I'm making the presumption, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm making the presumption he's he's not the oldest son of 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 philip um so what is what is known about so philip is murdered i believe you said i think you said he was assassinated so then what's what's known in that in that period when there isn't an, an active king in in macedon and how how did alexander beca- become king he was acclaimed practically immediately he was at he was present at the assassination it happened in a very public place when philip was being fated um as the new uh, leader of the Greek states uh, in an arena and his bodyguard who actually, one of his bodyguards who happened to uh, be one of his jilted lovers, slipped up to him, gave him a big kiss and slipped a Celtic dagger into his ribs. And um, so it was a, a, a brilliantly sort of passionate, sort of jealous love match gone absolutely, you know, wrong. And Alexander is back there um, behind his father, suddenly sees it all happening. And he's pretty much acclaimed uh, on the spot as Philip expires, really. He's right there on the spot. He's the most uh, striking, I suppose, most mature, most well-known of uh, Philip's children. He's male also, Philip had quite a few daughters. Alexander has a sister called Cleopatra. Um, the Macedonians pretty much unlikely to follow a woman, of course, in those days. Um, Alexander was right there. And some would say that he may have had some foreknowledge. This has been debated by scholars. There's no very good evidence, but um, it's possible that he had an inkling there were plots afoot. You know, in these places, there's always plots of fun. It's like academia, you know. <laughs> Somebody is always trying to stab you in the back, and uh, it seems to rigueur for um, for these kind of uh, cultures, I suppose. So in this, so in this, in. yeah, like in this period, then there was no, there was no cases in the evidence of of Alexander killing any of his siblings. Uh, he certainly killed his uh, cousin. Um, Mentes, who would have been his father's elder brother's son, which would make him first cousin. And Mentes was uh, did not last very long. He was slightly older than Alexander, 
Um, he would have been a couple of years older. He was around the court. Some nobles, I think, got behind Amentes, but um, Alexander, usually the uh, accession of a new king results in some sort of purge uh, to their close family members who might well make difficult rivals. And Alexander cleaned up the, took out the trash, i.e. the rest of his close family. Not his sisters, though. He, he left his sisters alone, but um, and his half-sisters. But And he left one boy alone who was the son of um, another of Philip's wives, a fellow called Philip himself. And he left him alone because uh, um, he, he turns up later at the end of Alexander's own life. Um, but anybody that could be deemed a threat was eliminated. Why do you think he left that boy alone? Uh, this, the sources are a bit hazy about Philip III as he became known, or Aridaeus, um, and he does become king after Alexander about 12 years or so, 15 years later. Um, but Aridaeus, we get the impression he was possibly disabled in some way, and so Aridaeus was not deemed a particular threat, you know, and I'm not sure there's been an Plenty of articles written on this to say he was mad or he was sort of, um, he was odd in some way. But uh, chances are he might have, might possibly have just been epileptic or something like that, you know. He became king at one point? He did after Alexander, yes, indeed. He's around when Alexander dies and he's a slightly older, slightly older man by then. And uh, he became king for a short time. Uh, but he didn't last very long. What was his uh, What was his his name for my uh, again, Pat? So well, I have his, his name was Philip Aridaeus. His name was okay. Aridaeus, and he was okay. he became king as Philip III later on. You know. Okay. Um, so when Alexander became king, how old would he have been? Alexander. Uh, he was twenty. He was, he 20. was twenty. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, as for Philip Aridaeus, we're not sure. I'm supposing it's difficult to say. When Aridaeus could have been born, I suppose um, maybe it was five years old. I don't know. Oh yeah, and that's that's okay. I want yeah, I wanted to get a, a bit more information on um, Philip Philip the Third, and that that could be a potential. I'll, I'll do more research. It could be a, a different episode down the road. But uh, yeah, my question about the age was more for Alexander the uh, the Third. I could dig into a book right here for you if you want Aridaeus. Oh, go for it. Um, yeah. but it's probably. Uh, there you go. Um, no, I can't. Yeah, don't sweat it. Don't sweat it, Pat. Aridaeus was born in 358 or 357, so according to Walter Heckel, so uh, good Canadian scholar, Walter Heckel, he knows his stuff. You pulled the so actually maybe, pulled uh, that you actually pulled that number from that book pretty fast. That was good good moves. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got piles of books around me. It's the nature of the, the nature of the beast. <laughs> I'm never happier than when I've got lots of lot of lots of books around me. So a total total pro though. You just grab grabbing <laughs> that book and you found it right away. Um, yeah. Uh, can you describe the de- geographic demarcation of uh, Macedonia when um, Alexander became uh, king? Uh, Macedonia has expanded by that stage to pretty much dominate most of northern Greece. It's dominated uh, to the north of uh, Thessaloniki out towards what we call modern Turkey and southern Bulgaria. It's also dominated to the uh, west uh, into what we 
and it was Albania, I suppose, southern Albania. And Macedonia is pretty well uh, the dominant um, uh, power for all of northern Greece, all of southern the southern uh, Slavic, what we call Slavic states in the modern era, and uh, right the way to the uh, Adriatic coast. So it has expanded in its influence um, under Philip II over a period of 20 years to be the, uh, the central uh, military and political power, you know. But the only place Macedonia doesn't really have any control over is Sparta, right in the south of Greece. Mm. So it goes about as far south as, as Sparta? Uh, yeah, um, the Macedonians pretty well had the Peloponnese, but they left Sparta alone just to keep, keep them in a too hard basket, basically. And um, the, the Spartans did indeed rebel against um, the Macedonians and went to war with them a few years later. But um, by then, Alexander was miles away in Persia. What about the uh, islands like the Ionian Islands or the Cyclopes? I'm slipping the, the, the word, but you know what I mean, on the southeast yeah, with yeah. Um, the the- um, Santorini and such. Cycladic, uh, the Cycladic yeah. Islands. Far, far south is that. We need to remember that Macedon, Macedonia is not a great naval power, though they do have a navy right now. Uh, and the Persian... Um, and the Persian navy under the um, kings of uh, the Levant, you know, the Middle East and Cyprus probably dominate the Aegean and the islands more. Um, So um, the expansion into the maritime side of it, not so so great, but so Philip did build a navy, um, but it was an inexperienced sort of navy, and it wasn't up to the uh, quality of the um, uh, of the Persian sort of allied navies, the fleets from Cyprus, the fleets from the cities of Sidon, Tyre, and those sort of places. Okay, so he's twenty years old. He becomes king of Macedon. Um, what? How do you summarize? his reign what if and what i mean by that not that we have to keep it to a minute i don't mean it like that but but what are the main what are the main events if you're to describe them that he that really marks uh his his reign as uh king of macedon Uh, alexander starts by eliminating a few threats on the domestic scene then he goes to the north up to the river danube and suppresses the tribes because everybody finds out Philip has died and they think, great, we'll start making moves. And they don't realise that um, how powerful and how strong Alexander is. Uh, and he immediately um, does a campaign to the north. And then he finds that the Greek city of Thebes uh, rebels. So he goes down and he sacks Thebes and destroys it. And Thebes is an important city you know, to the north of Athens there in Boeotia. Uh, and this really shocked the Greeks. He destroyed a city, which really shocked the Greeks and that made them really shut up. And as soon as he felt he sort of, um, took him about 18 months, I suppose, he felt he secured or consolidated himself in Europe. He went straight across the Bosphorus to Persia, to what we would know as Turkey, to fight against the Persian Empire. And... Um, 
which was always his main aim, I think, to go and conquer a huge, huge empire. And he proceeds um, over the next, that's about 334, he proceeds pretty much over the next seven or eight years to do so and conquers all of the Persian Empire, what we call Turkey, the Middle East, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, those regions up, up towards the former Soviet Empire, and India. Not so much India, really Pakistan these days. And he conquers, he just makes a beeline across the Persian Empire, defeats anybody that opposes him, overthrows the the great king of the Persians, and uh, he gets finally to India, and um, and there he turns back. Uh, but then he doesn't live very much longer, and he lives a couple of years longer. What uh, and 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 uh, to to clarify and, and make sure that um, that I also said the, the correct empire earlier. So what what Persian Empire would have been oh, in the command? Empire, yeah, the Achaemenid. Okay. The, uh, the family, and that's the great empire, which is it all conquered all those uh, Western Asian um, nations and empires, conquered the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the uh, Egyptians, the Middle Eastern nations, the um, the great nations of Lydia and that up in Turkey. Uh, so the Persian Empire has expanded from its heartland and. Uh, what we'd call Western Iran, I suppose, out to just become a, a superpower, like the Soviet Union, like America, I guess, pretty much the same sort of thing. To my, to my knowledge, the Achaemenid Empire and the Macedons um, weren't in conflict at, at this point in time prior to um, uh, Alexander's life in the in a short period before, um, you know, please fill in the blanks if there's anything inaccurate about that in any any way. I, mean, I think I re- recall from the previous episode on F- Philip II, if I recall, Philip was planning um, an inv- an invasion of the um, of the Achaemenid Empire, but I, I don't recall how far he got or if he got um, to to the conquest at all. What what do you think, um, Alexander? So if they weren't at war, and please clarify that point. If they so if they weren't at war at the start of Alexander's reign, what what interested him in in uh, performing a conquest on the Achaemenid Empire? I think part of it is to do with oddly, I suppose, retaliation for the invasion of Xerxes the king of Persia back in in 480 or so BC, so 150 years earlier, which was uh, deeply uh, embedded angst, you know, in the Greek, in the Greek psyche, I think. But also um, Alexander's, the main name of Alexander's game is conquest. He just wants to go further, conquer more people, and to just, um, he's just one of the great conquering kind of um, spirits, I suppose, from history. And there he has a, a huge empire on his doorstep. I also think that that was always his father's plan as well, because his father had started a campaign against the Persians and he had a beachhead in Asia. Uh, and he had several generals and a smaller army there. 
and he had begun proceedings against the Persians and Alexander just picked it up straight away and, um, and just carried on until he got as far as he could go. Right? And I think that's why Professor Bosworth calls us out as um, book Conquest and Empire because uh, Alexander is about conquest. Um, he's just one of those spirits that gobbles up nations, I suppose, you know. And, uh, and, uh, that's the energy behind him. And, you know, it's the expansion of, of history. You know, people seem, often seem to come from nowhere. Look at the Mongols, you know. Uh, they, under a, a leader that unites them, before you know it, within three or four generations, their empire stretches from Japan to Poland, <laughs> the, the one of the greatest ever. Uh, and it all starts with an inspired figure like, like Genghis Khan. Now it's just like that. How do you, as a scholar who studied this topic a lot, reconcile? how he was able to do what he was able to do, given that the Persian Empire was substantially larger. Uh, uh, bigger, yeah. Uh, it's military might, you know. Um, I, I read about, see, uh, I'm quite interested in the in naval matters. My, my father was in the Royal Navy for 15 years through the, through the World War and that. And um, one, of the, one of the things about America's dominance really is its aircraft carrier fleet. If somebody's making some noises that they don't like, one of those enormous aircraft carriers arrives off your coast. Uh, everybody usually falls into line because it's, it's insurmountable power. And Alexander's army, the army that was forged by Philip II, um, is better than anybody else, essentially. It can't be resisted on the battlefield, not very effectively anyway, especially not when it's run by a general of genius uh, and uh, brilliance, you know. And, um, I don't want to get the idea I love Alexander because I, I love and hate him. I must love him enough to spend... <laughs> 40 years sort of uh, studying him and teaching about him. But uh, I don't know whether I'd have enjoyed meeting him or not. Mm. But, you know, yeah. Does it depend how many beers? <laughs> oh, well, it depends what the beer was like. I don't drink anymore, so you probably, oh, yeah. like right. probably, probably have just uh, executed me. <laughs> as, a, as a wowser, you know. <laughs> so, so his army won that war. How did he die? And how old was he? Or approximately, uh, how old was he when he died? He was only 32 when he died. And he died uh, in, in uh, Babylon, uh, where we, not too far away from modern day Baghdad. Uh, on his way back uh, from India. And um, he died after a drinking party where there was some massive drinking competition in which the participants sculled. I remember a number of professors and I just sculling um, 
a certain drink that I introduced them to up in Calgary some years ago, and they thought it was good for sculling, but it wasn't really. It wasn't the sort of drink you should scull. And um, the head of the department a few days later said, next time you take the faculty out to get by them drinks, could you please not introduce them to any drinking competitions? Alexander's men had a party and they drank from some massive container and toasted each other. At some point, Alexander allegedly leapt up and gripped where his kidneys might be. And so he'd been struck in the lower back with an arrow. Now, this is all surprising. <laughs> uh, and he was taken away and sort of he developed a fever. And about 13 or 14 days later, he, uh, he died, he expired. Do scholars know or infer uh, who killed him and why he was killed? Well, yeah, this is uh, one of the hugest debates. Uh, I've had I've participated in this debate a fair bit uh, around Alexander studies. The two um, uh, conflicting uh, theories are, was he poisoned or did he die of natural causes, perhaps uh, hastened on by, or did he poison himself with alcohol, I suppose, or was there a conspiracy somewhere by his, um, by his generals? This is an ongoing discussion. Many doctors, many medical people have proffered uh, theories about the, the whole topic. We, ancient historians don't really by and large believe he was poisoned anymore. Um, we think that it happened uh, due to his debilitation after all the wounds he suffered and also psychological trauma. Uh, and also, he died on June the 11th, um, 323, in Iraq. Pretty unhealthy climate by then. Some think he may have had malaria and he had a recurring attack. Uh, and some, in the aftermath of the event, of course, there were a lot of accusations going around and a lot of people were running for cover, going, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, because the guy is only 32, he's at the top of his game, he's struck down, he dies, you know. It's Kennedy-esque, there's no doubt about it. Um, the chances are, for me, there was no conspiracy, he was not poisoned, unless you count that excessive drinking is bringing on the fever which eventually debilitated him. Do you think he was really shot by an arrow? Oh, no, no, no. no it's, it's just described that he he leapt up and he gripped his back in a way uh, and he had a pain as though he'd been struck by an arrow. Okay, okay. So was, there's no, there's no literally an arrow. There's no literally no, no, no. an arrow. Okay. Is, no, sorry, I, I sort of mislead you there a bit. No, no. He, uh, <laughs> it's okay. So I ask questions. <laughs> Uh, that, would have, that would be pretty obvious if somebody shot him through the, with an arrow. Yeah. Well, because well, I was wondering how the poisoning got came in. I thought the, the right. You're talking about the arrow. <laughs> uh, that's that's one of the descriptions of his uh, of these drinking parties he was having. Uh, these guys could drink, man. You know, they there was a drinking contest in uh, out in Persia somewhere during Alexander's reign. It got down to two guys. And the winner, winner drank 
12 litres of uh, unmixed wine, won the competition and died. Happy to have one wonder as well, you know. Uh, there you go. Uh, that, would, that could do it, you'd think, you know. Uh, yeah. So um, these Macedonians were ferocious drinkers. Possibly some would say, you know, to catharsize themselves for some of the deeds they perpetrated, you know, and some of the some of the uh, the genocide they committed, really, which is it's it's unknown. Then there's there's not consensus about the cause of death, but there's speculation in the scholarly community that he was poisoned. Is that correct? There was speculation. In ancient times, that he, that foul play had, as I said to you earlier, regicide was the uh, the uh, Macedonian national sport. Kings did not tend to die in bed. Uh, they tended to die of foul play. Uh, much more common than to live out a long and fruitful life, that's for sure. And so, when a young king at the top of this game only 32 years old, dies unexpectedly after a 12 or 14-day illness, questions were asked. And people and people went as far as to write up fake diaries to exculpate themselves from responsibility to say, Alexander seemed fine this morning, he went out and did this and that, and then he, they had a few drinks later on, and then he got invited to a party by this guy, and everything seemed normal and then, you know, uh, and these fake diaries were published after his death to actually exculpate people who were probably being accused of, of uh, everybody running scared, you know. One of the reasons for this is, of course, Alexander had no clear heirs, so he did not um, secure the... Uh, future sort of um, stability of his kingdom, which was one of the greatest uh, unfortunate things that happened to him. Well, let's, let's, let's cover that as well. So what was his sexual orientation? How many marriages did he have? And is it known if he um, had any children? He certainly had some children. We've got, um, we've got records pretty much. We think that his main squeeze was his companion, Hephaestion. He, um, when I first started studying Alexander, it seemed as though he was more inclined to boys than he was to women. Um, but as I've gone further, and that was quite uh, back in you know 20 or 30 years ago, that was quite controversial. I had to give some very awkward lectures trying to explain Alexander's sexuality. I can't do it at a moment here. Um, but um, as time has gone on, I've looked at it again, and Alexander is actually linked to a lot of women. We can link him only to three men, as far as I can tell, but we can link him to quite a lot of women. So it could be oh, he liked having sex. They didn't want whom he had it with. But he probably liked women a lot more than our popular uh, belief might um, indicate. So I've slightly changed my tune here. Um, but I think the one person he really loved was his companion, Hephaestion, who was one of his um, childhood companions and, and 
became one of his generals and and political, um, you know, subordinates sort of thing. Uh, Is he known to so have? Yeah. Big can of worms, anyway. Big can of worms, all right. <laughs> Is he known to have any? Have had any children? Oh uh, yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a young boy called Heracles who was the son of a woman called Barsine, whom he had a, a an affair with. She was a uh, Persian woman. He had married two women, two royal women who were um, daughters of the previous Persian king and. They were both pregnant. And one is the famous Roxana, Roxanne, um, who, whose name is, you know, quite famous, really. Uh, and there was another one who was also pregnant. And so he dies with two unborn children. And he has that brother I told you about, who is, um, I suppose, in his mid-30s by now. Um, but Alexander... Uh, they're the only children we can, uh, yeah, I think they're the only children we can link up, link him up with. They're all either embryos or infants, and uh, it's a big problem. Uh, who is going to succeed this brilliant, beautiful, amazing king? Uh, so, okay, so for the for closing question, possibly the closing question for the official part of the, the conversation, um, Pat, um, can you so in in the chronology Alexander is dead dead now he 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 died um can you summarize and for the sake of time with this question uh can you can I know there's a lot of history here um so this sure. is a big this is kind of a big question but it is probably several episodes could be dedicated to this topic but just so that it's not a cliffhanger for everybody so Alexander dies what what transpires in the next you know few years or twenty years that's pertinent to how the to, you know what happens with the empire at this point inside of a closing uh, Andrew, kind of context? Talk about big questions. <laughs> and did I open up a can? <laughs> I, I, I tried to preface it. <laughs> what happened in the twenty years after Alexander's life? <laughs> uh, Alexander died. And, and, and do really, that and, and do that in in one minute if possible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to run a course down here in New Zealand, which will take 13 weeks on this whole topic, and that will encompass and will hardly do any justice. Uh, but the the Macedonians find themselves in Babylon. They've conquered a huge empire. They don't have a king, and but they are a lot of powerful men. Alexander is the tall poppy, but he has a lot of good, pretty big poppies under him, and these powerful men will pretty much turn on each other and they fight a series of successor wars for the next um, 20 to 25 years or so until they fight themselves out or pretty much die in battle or of old age. And um, pretty much uh, it is chaos. It is most... Uh, you think Game of Thrones was interesting. The period of the successors is just unbelievable, really. What happens and what doesn't happen and the twists and the turns and the quirks and the characters, uh, you know, incredible battles, amazing sieges, classic and horrendous betrayals, uh, you know, uh, women going to war with each other, even the royal Macedonian women had a war with each other. This is Alexander's sister against his mother. Uh, and it is absolute 
a nightmarish um, of chaos, basically. It's remarkable. Um, one of the most remarkable periods in history, I think. And uh, we're still trying to unravel it a little bit. I've been publishing this for, you know, 25 years, I suppose. And nowhere near it. Nowhere near unraveling anything in many ways. It's still to synthesise the events that happened 20 years after Alexander. Um, it's a monumental task. It's one I set my grad students onto, and slowly, hopefully, they clarify and unpick problems, solve things, and I'll be long gone. I'm laughing from the grave, and they'll be hopefully doing uh, interviews with people like you and say, "Yes, we know what happened there." Mm. <laughs> but it, but but they but they needed people like you before them as well, Pat. To to help, help, as right? Needed, point, point in the direction. <laughs> as I needed my own professor to set me on the path, and, and this is how scholarship works. You know, uh, you you end up with a pedigree, and you've got to do your part as far as you can, and then, but hopefully, disseminate it to uh, better brains than than oneself to actually try and work things out, and and also make it relevant to the modern world is another thing, by which I mean uh, provide lessons and paradigms and examples. Um, like invading Afghanistan, you know, it was ever a good idea. It was a poor idea for Alexander. He did very badly up there. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so you brought up you brought up your professor um, yes, a moment ago, and you and you um, I think you men- mentioned earlier uh, um, uh, his name too, but I think you mentioned Professor Bosworth. Um, yeah. You mentioned Bosworth, and um, and I was going to bring this up, so it's a very good segue. I told you I was going to uh, try to fit this in the conversation because how I came across your professional work was actually a writer on the late Professor Brian Brian Bosworth, who was a scholar who did a lot of work in this area. So can you take a moment and share? Um, that relationship that you had with uh, late Professor Brian Bosworth, why he was important to you and the the work that he did on this topic? Oh, uh, well, yes, I I chanced to um, be in Western Australia in in Perth and uh, I was going back to university, um, this is back in 1990, I went to one of those meet the professors sort of days and evenings or something, which are very, very awkward. I now have to do this sort of thing myself. And, and I uh, met um, Professor Brian Bosworth, whom uh, I was not, I did not know uh, how important, what a great scholar he was. And he only saw in me, I had my motorcycle and clothes on and gear on, and he just thought I was some scruffy biker, I suppose, and I still am. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing led to another in due course, and... Um, I ended up uh, uh, doing a PhD under his supervision and uh, working with him a good deal for the next 10 years and uh, picked up the picked up the glove, the glaive myself, I suppose. And uh, he was wanting to move from Alexander the Great into the period of the successes and I was very interested in it. And, uh, and here we are, but um, he died in 2014. Uh, he wasn't very old, he was only about 72 or so, uh, which was very sad. And um, uh, So I haven't quite outlived Brian yet, but uh, 
we'll see how that goes. <laughs> he was a me- mentor, but also a friend, it sounds like. Indeed, very much yeah. so, yeah, yeah. And uh, quite marvellous um, uh, teacher and an extremely insightful writer, uh, insightful mind and an, an exquisite writer. Uh, I strive to emulate his writing style uh, shamelessly because he had an elegant touch with uh, words. His books are remarkable. The book that uh, you, you recommended before that Dr. Uh, Bosworth yeah. wrote his conquest and you can hold, hold it up. This is, I'm speaking, yeah, sure, yeah. I'm speaking uh, um, from the audio context in case someone's not seeing this uh, visually, we are recording um, the, uh, the, the visual as, as well. So yeah. So um, uh, Pat's holding it up. Uh, it's uh, conquest and empire, the reign of Alexander the great. And that's by professor Brian Bosworth. Uh, and that was published by Cambridge university press. Yes. It's, it's now in several uh, other editions of is the one, the paperback one we use now. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, oh, sorry, no, not that one. Uh, but it's um, continued to be unsurpassed, really. Many people have written books about Alexander the Great, as they did in the ancient world, and yet um, uh, that's one that's outstanding, you know. Uh, and, and so um, having the personal connection there, Obviously, the sales are not going to do him any good anymore, but, but it's just the most useful book still. It's been unsurpassed, I think. It's always fun chatting with you, Pat. And uh, yeah. I, I know I know you're some somewhat tre- trepid or hesitant if you would invite um, Alexander out for for whatever it's going to be a coffee maybe. But uh, if we're ever in the same city in the in the Mediterranean basin, I would definitely invite you out for 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 a coffee. I'd, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be very very happy to buy you as many coffees. Compass <laughs> around those as you can uh. drink. Uh, I don't know how well, how much you Canadians can drink. Don't worry. <laughs> it was, so, it was, uh, it was yeah, a pleasure. It was a pleasure chatting with you, Pat. Thanks for uh, Thank and, and a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on the show. We'll stay in contact. See. So again, everybody, the book that uh, Dr. Wheatley uh, wrote that I mentioned, he's co-author of Demetrius the Besieger. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes, and I'll also drop a link to um, the late Professor Brian Bosworth's book that we spoke about as well in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Pat and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. And you too. Bye, Andrew. Nice to talk to you. (laughs) Awesome. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.